Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I'm Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark, and I'm very, very pleased to be joined today by Whit Stillman, the director of The Last Days of Disco and Damsels in Distress, among other features. Uh, We're here today to discuss a subject near and dear to my heart, and that is Mr. Stillman's first feature, Metropolitan, which has, in recent years, become uh, my favorite Christmas movie, and I feel like it's become a stable of the, uh, the, the Christmas movie conversation. I think folks are, folks are starting to uh, buy into that, uh, and I like that. Uh, he will be on hand to discuss Metropolitan this Saturday, December 16th, at the Dryden Theater in Rochester, New York. Uh, and if you're not in Rochester, you can watch Metropolitan by yourself or with friends on either the uh, Criterion Channel or Max, a.k.a. HBO Max. I still have a problem with Max as a standalone name. Uh, It's also available on Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection, which is currently having 30% off sale, so pick it up there if you don't own it already. Uh, And if you haven't picked up a copy of Fireflies Presses with Stillman not so long ago, uh, do yourself a favor and do so. My understanding is that they are almost sold out and uh, no more copies are going to be printed. It's going to become a collector's item, so... Go pick it up. Uh, Mr. Stillman, thank you for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so on the on the commentary track that accompanies uh, that Criterion disc that I just mentioned, um, it, you or one of your colleagues said something that has always stuck with me, that Metropolitan is at heart a movie about finding uh, the universal in the very specific. Uh, and, and I do think that the universi- universality of the film is kind of key to this idea of Metropolitan as a, you know, quote, a Christmas movie, end quote. Um, have you been surprised to see it embraced that way, the same way that, I mean, to, to a lesser extent, I think, but in the same way that like, it's a wonderful life, uh, or more recently and somewhat more controversially, something like, uh, Die Hard has been embraced in that, in that way. Yeah. I mean, I think when you're making a film, you're super hopeful and then there's discouragement. And then over time you hope that your film becomes survivable and it's been really Metropolitan has had sort of, after unlucky breaks, it's had nothing but lucky breaks. And being with Criterion has been really helpful because they took all the rights and got it on Max and got it on the Criterion channel. And I just saw someone saying that it's going to have a 4.45 a.m. airing on TCM. So after your debutante party and the first and second after parties, you can go home, scramble eggs and uh watch metropolitan well i it is it, it it's it it's interesting to kind of put it to the, the this category with uh you know some of these these other films because it is um it is very much a hangout picture i feel like this is a movie where you're you're almost sitting there with friends having conversation which is how i spent i mean this is how i spent most of my christmas breaks during high school and and college, you know, it was just going home and hanging out with folks. That's that's what this movie feels like. Yeah, someone said it's not really a Christmas, Christmas movie exactly. It's a Christmas vacation movie. Yes. Which is, it yes. sort of divides into the uh, the first week before Christmas and then the decadent period after Christmas. There's a lot of decadence in the film, we should say. Well, let's like, can we talk about Christmas as a hinge point? Because it does it does, uh, you know, the, the the first half or so of the film up until the actual day of Christmas is um, it feels like this uh, 1950s, you know, early 1960s era with the dead balls and all that. And then afterwards, it's, you know, the group splintering apart. There's, you know, there's more. It's a little bit more risque. Some of the activities. It's orgy week. Orgy week. I mean, I think an interesting thing about 
Christmas Vacation is that it divides into two pretty neatly. And there's a certain uh, quarantine period where you're not with your friends. So you're with your friends for a certain number of days. And then there's the sort of 48 hours of family. And then you're back with your friends again. Uh, can, uh, can we talk a little bit about the actual, um, uh, the actual uh, use of religion in the movie? Because, uh, you know, Metropolitan is not explicitly a religious film in the way that I think we think of, you know, kind of faith-based films now. Um, but it is a film that touches on faith and the pageantry of the Christmas season, right? Uh, you know, uh, again, there's that hinge point, but also I really, the most, the most poignant scene in the film takes place in the church where Audrey is near tears, uh, or in tears, actually thinking about her relationship with Tom and how it hasn't quite gone how she wanted. Yes, I mean, one of our big breakthroughs, um, the professor John Murray Cudahy, um, wonderful sociology professor at um, City University, he attended St. Thomas Church, which has a beautiful Christmas Eve service that's really legendary. They've got a, a wonderful voice choir and an and adult choir. And um, he helped me go to them to ask permission to shoot in uh, St. Thomas during the Christmas Eve service. And we had to speak to the verger. It's a post in this very rich church. And um, the verger, I think, was saying no to us when he said, yes, you can shoot our, our Christmas Eve service, but with no lights. There can be no, no film lights. And fortunately, with sort of super fast Kodak films, hence we're going to Eastman House uh, in Rochester, um, super fast Kodak film, we could shoot without lights. And um, that was among the first things we shot. And um, being able to tell locations later that, oh, yes, we're a positive film about New York and uh, St. Thomas Church allowed us to shoot their um, Christmas Eve service. It was sort of a magic um, talisman for the rest of the shoot. And there is a lot of religious content in the film, I'd say. Really the first scene that was supposed to be the opening of, of the film is the philosopher of doom, Charlie Black, talking about why there is a God to a voluptuous uh, young lady. And, um, and then we added earlier beginnings to sort of set up the story better. But it also starts with The Mighty Fortress is Our God, I think him on the soundtrack. And so we tried to weave that into the film too. It's part of Christmas and it's part of the lives of these characters. Yeah, I, I, that, that was another thing that, uh, that was kind of interesting from, from the commentary was you, you mentioned that that was the, that was the original uh, shot was Charlie talking about God, which is, again, just a... Uh, it is a it's a it's a it's a fascinating moment because it's also one that I identify with in a in a weirdly specific way. Um, but I, I, I another thing you discuss in in that is the is finding the film in the edit and and kind of putting it together. So why when you when you were sitting there putting the movie together, why does that sequence get moved to uh, essentially the third scene? Well, that, um, that wasn't after the, that wasn't an editing change. That was the screenwriting process. And sometimes I find it's easier to think of, of beginnings and endings than all the middle stuff. Um, so had that beginning and then had another idea for a beginning, which is sort of the meet cute fighting over a taxi cab outside the end of a dead party. So the meet cute um, outside the Plaza Hotel um, was the next idea to introduce the characters 
to to Tom Townsend and how they how they linked up. And then in writing the script, I realized that Tom Townsend was really not a very sympathetic character. It was not really a Tom Townsend point of view film. Finally, it was an entry point was Tom Townsend, but there really was it should be Audrey's story more. And I couldn't make the whole film Audrey's story, but I, I tried to increase the Audrey content in the movie because I think she was the sympathetic character. She was sort of the heart of of the film. And so we put in put in that first scene uh, of showing sort of her problems. And I think a lot of the girls who are having a coming out party or they're going to be the Deb, they actually enjoy it less than anyone. They feel that they're on display. They're all sort of torn about it, how they look, all this kind of stuff. There's a lot of angst. And it's also doing the factor of trying to get the audience to hate the group sociologically less by showing their problems. Um, and because I think a big problem for the acceptance of the film was the sort of radioactive social milieu that's portrayed. Well, can we can we talk about that a little bit? Because I do, I, I it, it's a fascinating problem to think about um, in the sense that the the ultimate villain of the film, insofar as it has a villain, right, is Rick von Sloniker. And Rick von Sloniker is a fascinating character because he shows the audience that this group of, you know, the, the Sally Fowler Rat Pack, they, they, they are... Uh, or at least the people we identify within it are also uh, annoyed by the kind of masters of the universe type that would um, that would come out of out of out of that whole scene. Uh, and it, but it, he's like, he's also almost unique in your filmography, maybe not quite unique, but it, like I feel like there aren't a lot of heroes and villains in your stories. It's just life, which is kind of what life is. Uh, he's. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm lost. I don't know where I'm going with this. Rick Von Sloniker, interesting guy, uh, great villain. Um, is that the key to making the people identify with these characters more? Yes, and I think you're really onto something about the films. And it's a bit hoist by your own petard in the sense that sometimes I sort of brag that we don't um, do two-dimensional characters. We don't um, sort of create uh, villains and stuff like that. It's all three-dimensional, blah, 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 sympathetic to all these people. And then I think a lot of the success of Metropolitan was the fact that we really had a dastardly cat uh, in the film that really helps the film. It really helps the film to have a really bad, bad person. I think in Last Days of Disco, from my point of view, there is someone similarly bad, which is the Bernie um, character who is the uh, owner of the club. And, and he's, he's kind of a bad guy. And also the door Nazi character um, played by Burr Steers, who later became a film director. Um, he's sort of humanized towards the end when he's just going to employment before he heads to Florida, um, which is identifiable. And um, and and so, uh, yeah, a, a two dimensional caddish character to hate. Um, can really be helpful. And the fact that he is sort of the titled aristocrat, the real bad guy villain, sort of salvages all our people to be less bad than, than that guy. Well, I, you mentioned the re, the initial response to the movie. And there was, a, if I remember correctly, there was some kind of hesitance to accepting that this was not a uh, a movie that was openly mocking this set, that it was, it was uh, sympathetic to them, which is 
unusual, frankly, in films about class. Like I, it is, it is, it is not a thing that you see a lot. It's unusual now, but if you go back into the '30s cinema, they had a much more interesting attitude towards class, where they just sort of dove into it and were, you know, not doing the thing with the sort of outsider character and the insider characters and and all those um, very familiar sort of pandering to the audience. Um, uh, tactics used in, in in cinema and television in the last forty years. What would you What would you recommend uh, folks watch if they want to get a taste of that? Uh, what What are some some films of of that milieu that that you think people might enjoy? Well, I think there's a fascinating um, film. It's not flawless. Like the ending is is a little too um, wincingly crowd pleasing. Um, and it was a lost film for many years because it was in Marion Cooper's um, collection and he hadn't let it out. And I think TCM succeeded in, in unlocking it. It's called Double Harness. Um, it's in, with William Powell. And it's really interesting in its sort of class point of view because the outsider character who marries this rich guy is not necessarily fully a heroine. There's moral complexity that you almost never see. Uh, of course, I, there are other things can... that... that that portray decadent milieu sympathetically, such as uh, the awful truth. I mean, Leo McCary was was great at a lot of these things. Um, let's see if we can find Double Harness on streaming. Maybe it's on the TCM. It's on YouTube app. It is okay. It's on YouTube. You know, accessibility of film is an interesting thing. I because I I do feel like we are simultaneously in an era when there's more stuff available than ever. Um, and yet there is still a the the streamers have not been great about bringing the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s stuff outside of, again, Criterion Channel, TCM. Um, but it is it, it does feel like audiences uh, are missing out on large periods of film history. Yes. I mean, um, Lou Lemnick from formerly from The New York Post has a wonderful Twitter feed about old films appearing on TV during the 50s and 60s and when they had their premieres. And a lot of us grew up, um, particularly if you're close to New York, on these independent channels that used to fill their programming day with old films. And uh, we got to watch them. Uh, the editor I worked with on Metropolitan and Barcelona, who's brilliant, Chris Telson, he said it became interesting in film editing, seeing the different versions of these films would be on the TV channels because they cut them up for the commercial breaks. Um, and the films would have sort of different sizes and different um, implications. I sort of saw this when um, Warner's put out Barcelona um, syndicated on TV and they did um, cuts in order to fit into the, um, the ad format. And they cut out the, um, the shooting joke and the subtext joke. And I got them to restore the shooting joke um, which I, I somewhat regret because I think it's kind of a bad joke. But um, the subtext joke, actually, by taking it out, it really strengthened the dramatic build of the last third of the film. And it was really interesting to see these brilliant um, editors at Warner Brothers um, going over a film and, and reconstituting it for ad breaks. I am I am fascinated to hear you say that because the subtext joke is I would I, it is it is it is the joke that I think most people remember who are only casually familiar or maybe not familiar with Barcelona 
um remember i i like that is that is it's it's a great line it's a great line but you you uh you think it hurts the dramatic arc of the film yes i mean there's a real trade-off with comedy because it's very rare that comic material advances the story or helps the plot or things like that and um it's sometimes I find critics slip into the habit of doing kind of a checklist of a film when they're reviewing it and they say, oh, it has no plot, it has no forward momentum, you know, and things like this, because just the nature of the material, if it's comic, it's not going to have certain amounts of tension and, and dramatic. I and mean, when you can get sort of velocity and forward momentum of a story and still having it funny, that's really great. And actually, Leo McCary was great at that when he was doing silent films, Keystone Cops and that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, film isn't checklist. If you're doing the comedy, you're not going to be doing something else. That's interesting. That is interesting. Uh, the, the comedy in Metropolitan is interesting as well, because a lot of it does come from the edits and the juxtapositions, uh, of the, some of the reaction shots, you know, when, when people are, are, are talking, uh, could you, could you discuss, uh, putting that together in, in the edit room and how it different, how it differed a bit from the script stage? Well, Metropolitan, I mean, the, the first, I mean, really all our films are very script based. And so it's really all in the script and the changes in editing are minor, except you put your finger on what's really important, which are the reaction shots. And so it's not changing the script. It's not changing the nature of the scenes, um, but it really um, changes the humor and the way it plays. And there's a lot of criticism of a sequence in Metropolitan, in the script, the very long Polly Perkins story. It's a long monologue by the Chris Eigenman, Nick Smith character, and sort of people who read screenplay books said, oh, you can't have this, you can't have a, like a five-page monologue or whatever it was. But once it was cut together, um, by then you sort of know who the characters are, and we kind of play it on their reaction as they listen to the story. And it really, really ended up working well. And also it profited by that whole thing that sort of Woody Allen sometimes talks about and other people talk about of threes, of you set something up and then you come back to it and that coming back to it is kind of cool. And then you come back to it a, another time and that is sort of the total payoff. And I think that's when it's sort of Polly Perkins is a composite like New York Magazine does. And that was also true in Barcelona, the shaving stuff. And I mean, it's great when you get that kind of material when you're writing a script. Um, it sort of puts a, a, a thread line of the comedy through through the script, and um, and that can be really helpful. But you're right that the uh, editor was really shocked the first time we had a screening, as Kasson's crew screening, that all the laughs were on the reaction shots. They're not on the line. It is a it's a it is it's a really interestingly cut together sequence if you just watch it for the reactions. Um, I uh, you you mentioned you mentioned how it plays with audiences, and I I feel like I see um, from your Twitter feed that you're 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 almost constantly on the road touring, uh, showing these movies to audiences. And this might be a slightly weird question, but I, I'm curious, what are you looking for from an audience when you go and watch it? When 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 you when you go and uh, either either sit there and watch it with them, or I assume you you probably go out for dinner while the movie is actually playing because you've seen it so many times. Um, or, or, from their reaction to the film, questions afterwards. What are you what are you looking from audience for from audiences? 
uh, at these things. I'm looking for a rich investor to step by outside and say, I want to finance your next three films. That's what I'm looking for. Um, but, you know, the, uh, the sort of writing, the preparing um, process for films is, is pretty solitary and, and, and kind of grim in certain ways. Um, and it's really fun to get out and, uh, and show the film and have it circulating and talked about. And I think it's been helpful keeping kind of Metropolitan alive. And like, they're not um, a lot of people pushing the film. And we have a wonderful distributor, Rialto Pictures, who um, does this kind of programming. And it, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I, I will say that there are a lot of people on Twitter pushing this film uh, with Stillman f- favorite of film Twitter, I feel like, uh, which is uh, always nice to see. Y- you mentioned finding uh, a, a, a rich a, a rich investor to finance your next few films. But I, I the thing that has always jumped out, uh, well, I don't know about always, but has has jumped out to me uh, about your movies and reading about them and reading about their making is that they are not particularly expensive movies i mean metropolitan obviously is a is a 90s a classic 90s indie very cheaply made and then and then kind of comes together as a success um but uh you know my understanding is love and friendship which is a period picture with big costumes and great great settings and all that cost about 1.5 to 2 million dollars is that is is that more or less right i mean 1.5 would be um damsels in distress uh I think that when deferments were paid, um, Love and Friendship was probably three million or so. Okay, but it's still, still it's that's hugely, not hugely well. It was hugely profitable. Um, the thing is, um, yeah, what I find sort of frustrating about the film business is I see these people making films all the time, but I just know their films are losing lots of money, even though they're prestigious and getting a lot of attention. And that we make these films that are all all profitable, except for Disco, I guess, I guess because the um, the, the 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 budget was for a studio film um, in a small way, like $9 million. And um, there's probably too much money spent on advertising at a certain point. Or I don't know what um, that one I don't think is, it counts as profitable, but all the others do. And um, you sort of, it's like the film business is kind of non-economic. You're not getting kind of rewarded for being profitable. I guess maybe they're not profitable enough for some big deal producer to take a producer's fee out of it. Um, or to change the direction of a film company. Um, but it is a little frustrating to see the fact that on the one hand, they're telling you, oh, it's a business, it's all this, you know. And then when you sort of check all the boxes as far as business, it doesn't really help you get all the money for the next film. It's it's wild to me because, I, you know, I had, uh, I had Roy Price, formerly of Amazon Studios, on the show a couple of months back. And we, we, talked, we talked a little bit about this. But I, you know, it seemed like what they were doing at the beginning there was exactly what you should be doing with a kind of an upstart uh, independent film company. You had uh, a bunch of films that were made for relatively small amounts of money from well-known directors uh and they all more or less either broke even or or came out ahead plus provided you know uh movies for the Amazon streaming service and all that but you know and that and nobody seemed interested in that now we have a billion dollar lord of the rings tv show on amazon that's what amazon's doing i it makes it makes no sense to me it makes no sense to me that's great sorry there's that's, not really a that's question great you had, that's it's, great you had roy on um i'm going to go go back and listen to that one i mean Roy 
Price and his collaborators at Amazon were really, really great. That was a great moment. I was so sad to see it um, dissolve and disintegrate. Um, such a shame. Um, in my entire career, like I've been in films like 40 years or something because I was doing the Spanish films before and preparing Metropolitan and Barcelona scripts. And all that time, the only two people who sort of stepped up and were really enthusiastic and helpful were Roy Price, and unfortunately that was sort of cut short, um, and Martin Schaefer at Castle Rock. Martin Schaefer backed three of the films, Barcelona, Last Days of Disco, and um, and Damsels in Distress. And Damsels in Distress, they did privately, like Rod Reiner and Martin Schaefer and others writing personal checks to to get the film off the ground, which is unusual in our business. And fortunately, they got, you know, good profits from Damsels in Distress. That's a really profitable film. And um, yeah. and it's so funny when people sort of mock you, oh, it only grows to a million. That million gross kicked off all the Sony TV deals across the world. People outside a film production have no idea what's profitable and what isn't profitable. And even inside, inside the box, you don't always know until much later. I, let's let's talk about it because this is a business of showbiz pause uh, podcast, and I I I I am fascinated by the revenue waterfall and and how much um how much money is kind of hidden uh, from from view because everybody can go to box office mojo and say well this movie only made eight hundred thousand dollars at the box office it's clearly a flop but nobody understands DVD or TV or VOD or any of those sales. So on, on Damsels in Distress, where did the bulk of the money come from? Was it TV? Was it home video? How did that work? Yes, I think um, I think pay TV and TV and international deals um, is where the bulk of the money comes. And Sony Pictures Classics is loved by producers because they don't spend too much on advertising. They spend very little on advertising. I mean, I got on Twitter and Facebook and all those things because at a certain point, the kind of great guy told me, you know, we're not going to be spending any more advertising, so you should get in social media. And we actually kept the film going like five more weeks in New York just with social media. And um, uh, the, I mean, it, each case is different. In the case of um, Love and Friendship, we had an absolutely wonderful experience. Amazon bought it early off a three-minute sizzle reel, and they got roadside attractions to handle it theatrically. They give us a, you know, open window theatrically. And um, it was just a terrific experience. It did super well. So I've had the luck of two Cinderella films, Metropolitan and then Love and Friendship. And, um, but there's one thing that was happening was they had a different agenda and purpose than we did. So our purpose was, yes, to have a successful film, get a good release, but also make money back for our investors. So we made all the money back right away for the investors and profit. But it could have been really a golden egg for our investors. But Amazon had the agenda of making the film really big for their streaming platform. And it was one of their first theatrical releases in, in that thing. So there was huge spending. And I think at a certain point, people were saying, you know, you don't have to spend this much on this film because it's doing really well. It doesn't need the advertising. And so it was a little bit the Miramax strategy of like, overspending and advertising awards everything looks great except the producers aren't getting any net profits and so we did get you know profits and and um but the agenda was different so you can never sort of anticipate everything in a contract but in addition to a minimum spend 
sometimes you also want kind of a maximum spend um, so that all the money that should be coming as profits to the investors is not being spent to glorify the company releasing it in a, in a way. And I love Amazon. I don't, you know, it's just their, their interest is different from our interests at that point. No, it is. It, it is interesting. If you go back and read, uh, I mean, there, there are now multiple books about uh, Harvey Weinstein and Miramax and all that. And there, there is an interesting kind of undercurrent throughout those stories, which is that Miramax was spending a lot of money on advertisements, but also parties and travel and that sort of thing. And that kind of ate into uh, the profit of most of their films, um, which, as you as you mentioned, kind of comes out of the, the none of the producers, none of the people who actually, you know, made the film uh, like to see that happen. Yeah. Um, because uh, obviously cuts into their money. Uh, the, the the business of the the industry has changed uh, obviously greatly over over the years. I mean, we are now very much you know we're two decades, three decades into the billion dollar blockbuster business. Um, uh, and and I'm, I I just want to get your take as uh, as somebody who entered the business in the in the um, you know that early '90s indie boom era. Uh, how how things have changed for younger filmmakers. If you are a, if you're a young filmmaker today and you're trying to uh, do do what you did with Metropolitan, is that even possible? Do you think? Yeah, I I think it's probably a pretty good situation now because um, the technology is 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 much friendlier. Um, there were real economic hurdles um, in our period, so we were a super 16 shoot. So I'm not enamored of film. Uh, I, I shouldn't say this before going to Eastman house, maybe, um, <laughs> finance for the Eastman Kodak company. Um, but, uh, there are just so many problems, uh, with film. We, um, super 16, uh, is, was sort of a genius adaptation to do low budget and be able to have the right format for blowing up to 35 in a way that looked pretty decent. And um, the Dewart Film Laboratory was sympathetic to people in our situation and would give us a camera um, for free. And then we'd later pay a fortune to blow it up into 35. And so there were all these huge expenses related to these formats in film. And you no longer have that now with digital. You know, you can do it with your, with your phone. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's it again, this is, you know, when you when you look at the stories of that era, you hear about like Kevin Smith spending thirty thousand dollars on uh, putting thirty thousand dollars worth of film on his credit card, which is a it's it's a wild thing to think about now because I go down to the Apple store, I get a phone that's probably 10 times better than the camera he had. um, And it costs 800 bucks, you know, it's it's a it's just a different era so what, i guess android. what my takeaway from this or an android you get a, you could get an android my, my my takeaway from this is you're not going to be doing the christopher nolan imax uh 1570 millimeter uh format anytime soon no no i won't okay <laughs> um uh but the uh but it, the uh one, one of the another of the big changes is the um the advent of digital uh, restoration and and being able to save and 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 I will say that you know going back and watching, uh, Metropolitan Barcelona Last Days of Disco, 
it is those movies look great because they were they were shot on film they were restored by or you know transferred by the criterion collection they they do there is there is something to be said for for having that there forever the metropolitan transfer doesn't look very good actually um it was done uh, in 2005 or 2006, and I think things have gotten better since then. Also, at a certain point, um, the grain from Super um, 16, from the Super 16 origin sort of shows up. The whole HD thing it gets to be a double-edged sword because there's some stuff you don't really want to see too crisply, too crisply and too correctly. A little bit of vagueness helps certain films. And um, I, I, it'll be interesting on Saturday night because we gave one of our 35 millimeter prints to to Eastman House. And that's the film they'll be sh showing. This is one of the original prints from 1990 um, that we printed on Kodak stock um, at Duart that'll be shown on Saturday night. And so I really want to take a look at that because um, maybe I've been too hard on film. I know when Damsels screened at that wonderful place in a family in, in its good good era in Los Angeles, um, they um, brought back one of the two premiere prints that Sony struck. And um, the woman who was projecting had been at the Arclight when it was being shown digitally, and she saw the film uh, version, and she said it was just unbelievably beautiful. And that was a kind of a cool process. Damsels came out as they were changing format. So we shot it digitally, and we color-timed it digitally. And I was really happy with the color timing digitally. Then we got to go to Technicolor, and um, I'm not sure it was called Technicolor then or Deluxe. They were changing form. And did a film out with another colorist, and it made it even better. I mean, it was just incredible what they could do. So there was kind of a great moment. And apparently those two premiere prints of Damsels look really fantastic. Yeah, that would be, that would be great to the see. Release, I, I, is the there... release prints looked the worst things ever because the release prints is, is two generations down. There's an inner negative and then release prints. And everyone was going out of business in that. And um, the printing was just terrible. Friends would call me up and say, I couldn't believe how terrible your film looked. And it was because the release prints were so bad. So there's the ideal yeah. dream version of 35 and then sometimes the reality. <laughs> well, I do think there. Well, there, there is a, there is a nostalgia tinged, uh, uh, element to to film. I think because I do, I do think, you know, we 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 look at the the rep houses uh, who are sourcing, you know, immaculate prints, and we forget that not everything always looked, um, that good. I I am curious. Is there any? I, this is a note. If you can't answer, or if you don't know, but feel feel free to pass. But is there any uh, effort or movement to get damsels on the Criterion Collection? Because I do feel like that would be a natural fit with the Whit Stillman kind of collection over there. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, the Times did this sort of number on us by complaining that uh, Criterion had three of our films and only two of Spike Lee's. So there's this kind of weird campaign um, in the Times. Um, about diversity and representation, which we were the, the bad guy. Not sort of taking into consideration that, well, it was a trilogy, and I had little to do but try to get my films on um, 
Criterion for 13 years um, while Spike was out making, you know, studio films and all that. And so um, I'm not sure. I think that maybe, you know, Criterion doesn't want more of our films. I'm not sure what the story is, but uh, we have our three films on Criterion and I'm happy for that. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, I, Damsels is, is now streaming again, right? It was, it was gone for, for a bit. I believe it's Unfortunately, it's off again. It was uh, such a great moment. Is it off again? It's such a great moment. Um, like right after Barbie was released, um, Damsels was finally streaming on Hulu and I think on, on Amazon. And, um, it was just terrific timing because Damsels kind of uh, suffered quite a few brickbats, people not really getting it. And I think Barbie helped people kind of approach uh, Damsels the right way. And having it um, come out streaming just then was, was great timing. Uh, it's, it's great. People should watch it. Uh, um, uh, maybe you can find it on VOD or uh, there, there is a Blu-ray out there. You can buy it and it's, it's, uh, you, you should check it out. But I do feel like, uh, you know, I, Greta Gerwig's probably about to get a best director, uh, nomination at the Oscars for, for Barbie. I feel like this is the perfect time for somebody to swoop in and put out a real, um, a real, you know, this is, this is, uh, the, a, a, an early Greta Gerwig picture. You could put it I never way. thought I'd be grateful to Barbie. <laughs> I remember when the Ken doll um, first came out, I thought it was like, I was only 10 maybe, but I thought this is the decline of the West. There's a, a guy <laughs> tall. So a decline has been uh, a steady part of your of your life that ever since, since, since the, the, the early days. <laughs> OK, it's it's all downhill um, from Ken. Uh, I uh, no, I, I am um, again, I, if, if folks can folks can track down a copy of Damsels in Distress, uh, you should absolutely absolutely uh, absolutely check it out. Um, it's great. Uh, I don't know. That was, uh, that was, that was pretty much everything I wanted to ask. I've run through my questions here. Um, uh, again, uh, Metropolitan is available on the Criterion channel. It's on Max. Um, uh, and, and if you, uh, if you enjoy it as much as I do, you really owe it to yourself to pick up the, the Blu-ray from Criterion. Um, it is, it is, uh, it is interesting. There was actually one thing from that. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I, as I mentioned, I was, I was listening to the, uh, to the uh, commentary track the other day, and there there was a moment where you guys were talking about color timing, um, and the the color timing in the dream sequence on that Blu-ray is, I believe, different yeah. from the theatrical. Yeah, and and it sounded like your editor was not thrilled with it. I don't know. I, I don't know about that. Um, I, I think we tried to respect uh, what we originally did in on the theatrical. I always worry that um, when you do the color timing later for the transfer you're going to change it in the wrong way make it all too sort of sepia um but um but i, I think we respected that I, I it's interesting because i like this is a this is again this is an invisible part of the filmmaking process that even people who uh, own a number of films at home don't entirely understand which is that you know when you when you were uh transferring something from from film to um, to home media, you have to do the whole color timing thing over again. And you do have the, you, you can, you can make changes or you can try and stick closest to what happens. I know, uh, some folks get annoyed with Michael Mann's home video releases cause those tend to be a little bluer 
in the in the home video than they were in theaters. Uh, but the uh, but it's but I, I'm just curious from your from your perspective as the director, you know, when you're sitting there trying to do the color timing, what are you what what is your what is your uh, creative process like? Well, I think it's interesting you mentioned the blue because that is a temptation. There is a kind of temptation to make it sort of conventionally pretty and to lose sort of the thread of the look. And I, I don't know what you're referring to um, about sort of mistiming those dream sequences for the transfer, because I think we respected the original idea, which is those dream sequences are supposed to be sort of disturbing and cold. So they are bluish in the cold sense, while the blue in the sort of conventional timing is, is sort of an ectochrome prettiness, postcard prettiness uh, approach, I think. And so, yeah, all these things are big issues and you worry a lot about it. And um, one thing that happens when you're doing it and it can really burn some money is you time some sequence in a new way and you like that and then you go back through the whole thing and try to make it the same thing. And there's a lot of sort of self-doubt and worry about what you're doing. Um, I, so like I said, that, that was pretty much everything I wanted to ask. Uh, I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked, uh, if there's anything you think folks should know about, uh, your movies or, uh, or, or the state of the business or where they can send, uh, where the rich investors who are listening to this can send their checks to get the next, uh, with Stillman movie. Well, if made. they sent them to you first, they, you can take a small cut, a very small Excellent. 2%. Um, but um, you have covered the bases so thoroughly. Really, if I, if I was wearing a hat, I'd, I'd take it off to you. So hats off to Sony for a, a great talk. Thank you uh, very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, again, I've been talking to Witt Stillman, uh, who is the director of many great films. Uh, check out his movies. If you are in Rochester, go see Metropolitan uh, this Saturday. Hopefully you're listening to this and you're, you're going to go see it. Um, and again, uh, pick up the uh, Fireflies press book, which uh, I believe you told me is going out of print. Yes. Yeah, it seems like it's going out of print. So pick it up because it's going to be a collector's item. You can pass it down to your kids uh, as a uh, as a as a nice little uh, uh, family heirloom. I have my copy. It's wonderful. Um, uh, it's really it's actually a really nice, uh, handsome little book. I, I like it a lot um, with some great production materials from metropolitan in there and uh a new interview and uh some collected essays very very good stuff i like it a lot uh anyway thank you for being on the show uh mr silman really appreciate Thanks, it son. um my name is sunny bunch i am the culture editor at the bulwark and i'll be back next week with another episode we'll see you guys then